0: Good evening to you all. As the retreat goes by, um, it sometimes becomes noticeable that certain themes emerge in the interviews. And when certain themes emerge in the interviews, then often it's time to give a particular talk on a particular theme. So I'm not saying, this is you. (laughs) But maybe it will be useful to you at some point in your sitting career. So tonight I'd like to talk about three kinds of questions. And the first question is what could be called the great question. In Zen, this is often talked about, the great question of life, life and death. The kind of immediate, powerful, personal, existential question that really drives a lot of practice. And the Buddha himself, of course, had a great question. There's the classic story of his protected and privileged experience within the palace where he was deliberately kept from exposure to the unpleasant uh, realities of life. His parents were basically trying to make sure that he turned his mind in directions other than towards the ways that humans and other beings suffer. They wanted him to be a warrior, to be a leader, to take care of the kingdom, to be a world leader if possible. Big ambitions for their son. But of course, the Buddha, having having taken the bodhisattva vow long before his birth, had a different kind of range of resonance than his parents intended for him. So the classic story is, at a certain point in his life, he went for a fateful trip outside the protected palace walls and came into touch with some universal truths. <clears throat> and when he was out there, outside the walls, he came across first someone who was old. And he said to the his companion, what... What is going on? What is the state of this being, this man? What is his condition? And he was said, That's old age, master. And the Buddha said, Well, does that happen to <laughs> everybody? <laughs> and he was told, Uh huh. and the next sight was someone who was sick and the Buddha asked his companion so what's the story over here and he said that's a sick person and He asked again the question, well, is this a general thing that happens? And it was told, yes, it's a general thing that happens, everyone. And then the third site, of course, was a dead person. And the same inquiry and the same investigation of whether it was a universal thing and then of course the final site was the site of a renunciate, someone who was pursuing their great question. And it was said that at that point in his life the Buddha's heart completely changed. Now we can say that this is mythological, and I'm sure much of the much of it uh, has uh Grown around the core story. But it seems clear that at some point the Buddha saw reality in a different kind of way and it really hit him hard. It really had a major impact on him and awoke within him the impulse to figure out what could be done about this. Was there something that could be done about it? And the Buddha in his own words talks about the period of time after he saw these sights, and he talks, talks about how the vanity of youth entirely left him. In other words, party time was over. This was something else altogether. And from that, that seeing, he undertook many years of practice in pursuit of the answer to his great question. How is suffering created and how can it be released? And in a very real way, we're the beneficiaries of that investigation. And in some very basic way, Many of us have a great question that brought us here. Some kind of experience that we have had. Some sort of thing that we may have noticed about reality and how it's put together. Whether that's reality generally or whether our own particular version of it. And these kinds of questions can be very powerful. For me, I can remember being in early adolescence and having a number of people who were members of my close-knit extended family become ill and pass away in close proximity to each other. And I can remember the experience of going, something's going on here. Something that my own religious tradition and training did not equip me to uh, understand or hold within a framework that made sense to me. Where were the deities? If, if If the all-loving being who created this uh, created this, why is it created like this? Why is it like this? I can remember uh, reading uh, an article once by another Dharma teacher and he talked about a similar point in his own life where the question came up was, why? 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 He was on retreat and his mind just kept repeating, Why? 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 Why Why is it like this? Why is it like this? Why does it have to be like this? Why is it like this? Why is it like this? Why is there so much dukkha? And you may have your own investigation of this that comes to you. So this great question can be very, very powerful because it contains with it our drive to understand and to find meaning and in a certain kind of way to find a kind of redemption of the conditions, the causes, the reality that we see here in this material world. So if the heart can open wide to it, and undertake, at the deepest level of our being, the exploration of this question, this is the path to liberation. And it's the type of energy that's required to actually carry the mind to liberation. Because it's too painful for the mind to stay where it is. It has to search. And the Buddha often says, Suffering ripens either into despair or into search. So this is the great question. Now the... Buddhism is... very much about holding this great question and investigating it. Investigation is a primary value within the Buddhist system. And when we hold this question and we begin our investigation of it, we're looking and practicing within the framework of the Four Noble Truths. The first being there is suffering, The second being there is a cause of suffering, which is craving born from ignorance. The third noble truth is there is uh, the possibility of release from this suffering. And the fourth is there's a path to its release. All of these teachings that we explore here together are the Buddha's answer to his own great inquiry. But the answer to our personal great question is only realized through our individual understanding gained through direct knowledge. That's how we will come to understanding ourselves. In other words, the answer arises within our own mind stream as the result of our own persistent and skillful search for the truth. So we could say that the offspring or the child of the great question is investigation. This second factor of the seven factors of awakening. And the talk I did last week discussed this at some length within the context of the meetings that we have together, the meetings between the retreatants and the teachers, how when you come in, basically you're talking about your own investigation, what you've noticed about what's going on uh, on a moment-to-moment level with your uh, body and your mind. What's happening at the six sense doors? And then in your talking about that, the teacher becomes engaged in an investigation on the spot with that direct experience as well. So this investigation which springs from the great question, is a really important, important part of practice. And if we're going to talk a little bit more about what investigation is, we would say it would include words like actively curious, noticing, this noting uh, aspect of mind which focuses on experiential reality, it wants to know the Dharma directly, meaning the truth of, what, of things directly. Wants to see it working and manifesting in what is observable. What we can actually feel, see, smell, taste, hear, and what's happening at the mind door. And focused to that end, investigation is the tool that we use to find liberating understanding. And its field of exploration includes all of our human experience, all of the four foundations of mindfulness. But this inquiry or this investigation is oriented in a certain way and it's towards understanding suffering and the end of suffering within our own little microcosm of experience. How suffering arises in the mind, how it's let go. So we can say, investigation is really key because understanding doesn't arise without it. And that's one of the reasons it's so highly prized within this system. So now having discussed the great question and investigation. I want to talk a little bit about what you might call the not so great questions, which is the hindrance of doubt. So maybe just a brief recap about what a hindrance actually is. So a hindrance is a type of experience which can arise, which can derail the development of concentration and can sabotage meditation unless it's recognized and worked with skillfully. So maybe by now, you know, the five big hindrances. You've certainly experienced them. I'm just guessing. Okay. Desire, craving, aversion, ill will, fear sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry. And number five is doubt. The first two are usually considered to be the heavy, heavy hitters. But the other three can actually be quite difficult to work with and in the case of doubt, even seductive. So let's talk about doubt and how it functions and how it can can be recognized in the mind. So the Buddha, or in the teachings, there are a lot of simile, similes given uh, that use images to talk about the hindrances. So th- this is one that uh, describes the quality of doubt. So And I'll paraphrase uh, a little bit. He says it's like a pot of water. So you have a pot. It's filled with water. And uh, that water is uh, cloudy, stirred up, and muddy. So it's dirty. It's got mud in it. And he says, imagine taking such a pot, And you put it in a room that's dark. And then, even if you're a person who has uh, typical eyesight, if you looked in that pot of water, in the dark room with with the mud in it and all stirred up, and you tried to see a reflection of your own face, you wouldn't get anything. You wouldn't be able to get any image at all of what's present. And he says, in the same way, if the mind is possessed by doubt and overpowered by it, you can't see the escape from it. You can't see how to get out of it. And then, if it's there, your ability to see what is skillful and what is unskillful, meaning you lose the ability to see what is uh, born of uh, wisdom, uh, metta, and um, other wholesome qualities, letting go. You can't differentiate that end of the spectrum that you want to increase overall from the end of the spectrum that is greed, hatred, and delusion. The mind sort of gets confused about what's skillful and what's not skillful, both for yourself and for others. And he, and he also says, and, and uh, teachings that you've heard before, or even teachings that you've memorized, you can't pull them up, you can't remember them. You can't access your tools in this state. You can't remember what the rules are when it's strong and it's not seen. So just like the other hin- other five hindrances, doubt arises when there's a lapse in mindfulness. And before that lapse happens, there's often an Uh, expectation, or an assumption, or a preference about what should be happening, uh, how things should be, and and that desire is not seen. But there's an expectation, often very unconscious. When that doesn't happen, when something else happens instead, and the preference isn't met, then unpleasantness and craving arises and mindfulness weakens further and then there's a loss of direct contact with the mind stream because you're in the hindrance. And there's not mindfulness there to meet it. So we could say that when doubt is present, mindfulness is always absent or weak. There's a lack of direct connection with experience. Lack of clarity there. So here's some other signs, too, because we know you can have a, a lack of mindfulness and, and be lost but without it, uh, but it isn't necessarily doubt, right? It could be greed, it could be sloth and torpor, it could be something else. But, but here are some hallmarks of doubt. There's often a inner dialogue, meaning thoughts in your mind, like you're talking to yourself, kind of thoughts, which is repetitive, meaning it happens over again, over again. And it asks questions in a confused manner, and it goes around and around them again and again, with nothing new being added to it, right? Just kind of like goes around and around. So there's thinking going on here, but it's the kind of thinking for which there is no answer available. And this kind of spinning then opens the door for other hindrances to come in. So um, we've probably all seen those revolving doors. um, For instance, at... uh, um, airplane terminals and and things right you've seen those revolving doors where it just kind of goes around and around and around and and doubt is a little bit like one of those revolving doors doubt starts pushing it or starts getting it moving but then all the the other hindrances kind of line up behind doubt and they take their own little slot and then pretty soon they're all going around and around in a circle along with the with the doubt. So one of the hallmarks of doubt is that it's very self-contained in a nervous kind of enclosed sense. And it doesn't actually connect with the stream of experience. There's a lot of speculation in it. And it runs on a self-contained loop. So it's a little bit like a balloon. Have um, you ever had the experience of uh, being at a party or something and you are you know what a balloon is? Okay, balloon. It's this um, rubber um, uh, thing with a little opening on the end and you blow into the opening. <laughs> 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 and it gets bigger and bigger and b- bigger, like at parties. Uh, in the States we have this. It gets bigger <laughs> and bigger and bigger. And then at a certain point you're supposed to take it and tie it off, right? And then it's a ch- like a decoration thing or children's thing. But if you let go of the end of this thing by accident, it just kind of like flies up in the air and spins around, spins around, spins around, spins around, finally exhausts itself and drops. I'll bring one someday. (laughs) I'll show you. So, with this spinning going on, the buoyancy of the mind and the motivation to continue gets lost. The air just kind of runs out. And then you are, there you are, confused with all, all these questions going on, not knowing what to do, not sure, sure how to practice, not knowing you know where to start, what to pick up, what to do next. One of the other images that, that the Buddha uses for this state is, he says it's like someone standing at a crossroads, At a, in a desert. So you're in a desert, there's a crossroads, you know, there's a road that goes this way, a road that goes this way, maybe there's one that goes this way, maybe there's one. Maybe that looks like maybe that's a path over there, but maybe it isn't, maybe it's just camel droppings. But you're standing there in the middle of the desert, it's unmarked, and you're wondering which way to go. And there's no way to tell, so you just like stand there. And like, well, should I? But I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I should. I don't know. Maybe I should. Maybe I should. Oh. Right? Confusion. The system just doesn't know what to do next. So doubt can be very seductive. I said that earlier. Because it can masquerade as wisdom. So now I'm going to tell you some ways, some stories that doubt tells us that we can get caught up in, all right? These are particular stories that doubt often um, is featured with, that involve doubt. A first area where doubt can arise is doubts about our and about our own capacities. Self-doubt. And I said earlier, the hallmark of doubt is all these circular questions that go around and around and around and don't really resolve or land on anything. But let me give you some examples of this. Imagine you're within the mind of these beings as I'm saying this and you'll get a feeling for what this state is like. So this is doubt about self and self-capacity. So I'm sitting on the cushion. It's too late in life to be doing this. I should have started earlier. But how could I? No, it's okay. Calm, calm, like how calm. My back hurts. My knees hurt. And I don't know what those questions mean in the morning. Those questions that get asked in the hall, I have no idea what they mean. I'll never get it. But maybe they're wrong. Is it stupid? I paid all that money to get here. I wonder what the teachers think about my practice. No, they'd say so. Maybe they just want to be nice. Not sure. Should I pay attention or is it self-hatred? Right. It's not exactly linear. <laughs> okay? You can see it, it's like you can see it pinging from one thing to another and the other hindrances interwoven with it. Okay, here's another one. This is for a different demographic. I'm too young to be here. Everybody else has been doing this for at least 20 years. They're all so old. I need to be with people my age. These teachers could be my grandparents. They have no idea what my life is like. I bet they still use dial-up. I hear ayahuasca really works, (laughs) but but it makes you sick. I hate vomit. (laughs) Maybe I should leave, but would I be a quitter? Is that bad? Or would that be wise? Or maybe I could uh, do yoga all day and take walks. That would be, could be wise effort, I'm not sure. But would I have to say it in interviews? <laughs> is, that, is that wise speech? Would it be wrong to take care of myself, to end my suffering? Okay. Then there's the classic. Um, imaginary... Uh, imaginary version of other people's experience. It goes like this. Everyone here is so quiet. They are so peaceful and tranquil. They're so far ahead of me. My mind's a mess. I can't stay on the breath. All I do is think. If I were better, I would be quiet. Quiet. I'd be quiet, too, but maybe they're asleep. (laughs) Is that a hindrance? Maybe people are too tired because of the schedule. If I slept in, I might have more energy. Is there a rule? But what if I go home and I'm still a mess? No. We'll still be okay, right? It's doing me good. Or is it making me worse? I'm not sure. That would be insight, right? <laughs> okay. So there's infinite permutations of self-doubt. Watch out for that because if you, if you believe it, then you've just been seduced <laughs> by delusion. So a second category where doubt frequently arises is doubt about the teachings. Or doubt about teachings you've heard here. So examples of this could be, um, How can they know what the Buddha really taught? It was so long ago. He didn't know anything about science. How about all that past life stuff? Do you need to believe it all? All those stories seem far-fetched. I don't want to drink the Kool-Aid. Is this religion? If Buddhism is so good, how come Burma is such a mess? (laughs) Didn't this practice come from Burma? Or is it Thai? Does Joseph speak Burmese? How do we know he got the right instructions? (laughs) It might be better to get a psychiatrist in here or something. Okay. Or, or maybe it's like um, this, another version. Uh, all of this encouragement to uh, continuity and viria. How does that fit with letting go? Isn't that just no effort? And who is getting liberated if there is no self? Or maybe it's the same self as the Hindus mean. Is that non-dualism? Maybe it's like the Tibetans, but they came later. Or were they before the Zen people? Do the Zen people have a self? Maybe that would be better. But is that non-dual? Okay. Okay. So, another frequent category for this doubt to arise is doubt about teachers. So, here it could go like this. There's a lot of versions of this one, but I'll just give you one. Okay, doubt about teachers. I don't think any of them have children. Are they married? Don't you need someone with your experiences to understand you? But maybe that's the relative level. Is that part of this? Or is that different? The Buddha left his family. Is that what what we should do to be enlightened? I don't want to leave my family. Maybe this isn't good for me. Are they just teaching aversion to life? Joy is part of it, I think. But all I hear about is suffering, suffering, dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. Shouldn't this be more fun? Where's the happy parts? Or is it wrong to want to be happy? So you can see, you know, if the mind doesn't see this going on and really buys into it, it creates a state of uncertainty which demotivates effort and then confidence and energy drop. So not only will you not get your great question answered, but you're going to have uh, have to remember that uh, you need to do investigation. Because at this point, when you're really in this state and locked in this state, and it's happening and all the other hindrances are happening with it, investigation is not occurring. So let's talk about working with doubt. So one important point is that if you want to make it bigger, give it unwise attention. There's a way to work with doubt and there's a way not to work with doubt. The way not to work with doubt because it strengthens it, is to engage with it in its own terms. And the Buddha says, there are things causing doubt, frequently giving unwise attention to them. That is the nourishment for the arising of doubt not yet arisen and for the increase and strengthening of doubt that has already arisen. Unwise attention unwise attention, meaning, unmindful, lost in, identified with the content of. So, even though doubt has a lot of question marks in it, there are a lot of question marks, right? Sentence fragments, incomplete thoughts, (coughs) question marks. It's not investigation. It kind of... uh, is a faux version of it. It's delusion operating under the cover of inquiry and when this is the primary experience and it's not known mindfully it can destabilize the whole thing. The whole thing because the system loses the ability to make any kind of effort and then you're like the person standing at the crossroads in the middle of the desert. You can't like go one way or another you're just Kind of like that. If it isn't seen, uh, the fall out of meditation experience happens. Do you ever have the experience of falling out of meditation? That's what I call it. I call it falling out of meditation. So you're there, you're doing your walking, you're sitting and... Walking and sitting, and sometimes you're present, sometimes you're not present. Sometimes the hindrances are there, sometimes the hindrances aren't there, but you know, you're kind of within the context of what's going on, you're doing the practice as best as you can. And then something arises that completely wipes out your capacity to be in a meditative relationship with it. Right? And then all of a sudden, um, uh, things are normal again, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Things are real, meaning the self-sense all assembles again, and uh, the suffering version of the self comes f- flooding up from the, the depths of somewhere with a lot of dukkha, and it's like dukkha any sense of connection with the practice is gone. And this fallout of meditation requires usually that you step back and regroup and reconsider what's going on. And often doubt is part of this experience, is bound up in it. So what's the answer of working with doubt? Doubt. It's to see it clearly in a non-identified way as just another meditation object. In other words, to become aware of this mental state of wavering as an object, as a meditation object. And actually use it. So the remedy of doubt is the investigation of the state of doubt, not enmeshment in its content, not trying to answer it in the way that the questions are being asked from within the state. Because we've already said it's a state of delusion. What would be answering the questions within the state but delusion, which is why The mind can't even spit out an answer to the questions that it's asking within the state, right? And the doubt has its own kind of tone. And it's this uh, wheel spinning and kind of ricocheting. Do you know the word ricochet? Is this a familiar word? So uh, it means one thing... um, moving with speed or force towards another and then hitting something and bouncing off it and going in another direction and then often hitting something else and then going in another direction and like that. This doubt keeps us ricocheting off the field of direct knowing which is the field where understanding arises. I said earlier when I was talking about investigation that the mind liberates itself through understanding gained by direct observation. The difference between doubt and investigation is that investigation, Dhammavikaya, rests upon direct experience and takes that as the source of emerging insight. So if we think about doubt within the framework of the Four Noble Truths, we get some perspective on what's required in order to work with doubt. So remember we said that craving born from ignorance is the basic cause of suffering. That's the second noble truth. But ignorance cannot generally be resolved by thinking alone, especially agitated thinking. I mean, if, if all it took for us to, to uh, become liberated beings was to think, we'd all be liberated, right? Because it goes on all the time. Some version of that. So ignorance can't be generally resolved by thinking alone, especially agitated thinking. Ignorance is a lack of knowledge and understanding, and thinking doesn't provide anything new to clarify the basic confusion from which this kind of thinking proceeds. So what I said is you know circular itself can uh, confined, Loop where one thought ricochets off another, leads to another, a lot of thought fragments, a lot of spinning out from where it started. So investigation is key to work with doubt, but it needs to be wise investigation. And so you need to hold to direct knowing and direct experience and stay with what can be directly known and not speculative thought. So in this case, the first step is recognizing the state. Doubt is like this. So one of the main purposes of this talk is to to give you a kind of organic review of what it feels like when it's there and it's actually functioning in a strong kind of way. So to recognize and investigate doubt, how would you do that? Summon mindfulness. Remember that one? Receptive, interested, allowing, present tense, awareness. Actually aim awareness towards the experience of doubt. Check out the body sensations. When I, when I was describing the state earlier and giving examples, you may have had an internal experience of kind of like feeling what that state was like. The unsettledness of it, the kind of agitation with it, the darting around towards one thing, then towards another, towards another. So the body sense could be kind of frozen feeling, that vacillating sense at the (laughs) the crossroads in the desert. It could be unsettled. It could be agitated with some worry and um, um, higher energy in it. There will be thoughts, I can almost guarantee you with a strong state of doubt, there will be a lot of thinking What you want to do is to know that thinking is happening, but don't follow the content of the thoughts. So I've I've said before why, but I'll say it again. Don't follow the content of the thought because the hallmark of the state is you can't answer it within, you can't answer the kind of questions that are being asked in the kind of way that they're being asked within that state, from within that state. So don't follow the content of thoughts. Notice if there's identification there, particularly if this is mixed up with your self sense, your sense of yourself as a human being or a sense of somebody uh, here on retreat or somebody who's uh, trying to do this process. And you may find that there's a, a strong self sense bound up in it that has other hindrances associated with it. Maybe feelings of sadness or feelings of anger or feelings of self-judgment or feelings of something. Those are different hindrances that may also be present arising at different points during the experience of this state. So don't believe them either. They're just states. So then it can be very useful to turn awareness towards something that can be directly known. This is a primary instruction for dealing with this state. So turning awareness towards something that you can see, hear, touch, smell, taste, something, one of the five senses there's no doubt about the feeling of your foot on the floor right there's no doubt in that so going to something that you can uh, connect with on a experiential level fairly easily okay now having done that, now mindfulness has been restored. Now you're mindful of, say, the sensation of your foot touching, or you're mindful at the uh, hearing happening at the ear door. Doubt is not present (laughs) with the sensation of the foot touching the floor. Now, these states can come back, of course. It's a question of developing skill in seeing them and not be seduced by them. Now, none of this is to say that it's wrong or bad to have questions arise in meditation. Our mind creates questions. This is part of investigation. The mind is looking. You could uh, say in a certain kind of way that investigation is a kind of holy curiosity. It's interested in things, It, it asks a lot of questions, maybe not verbally, but it's interested, it wants to know. It wants to know, it wants to learn, the whole system does when you're engaged in this. So that part is all good and necessary. Doubt, the way I've described it, is a different thing. But you can see how tricky it is sometimes to tease the two apart. Now, questions that you have, of course, you can always ask your teachers. You know? They probably won't be able to tell you whether you should take ayahuasca. <laughs> right? But some of the other things they can probably help uh, address either directly or move within the meditative framework that you're practicing here. So it can actually, they can actually enter into uh, mindful relationship with your main Um, undertaking here so as I said earlier in Buddhism uh, inquiry investigation is very highly valued you just don't want to take the bad detour off the highway of investigation and get stuck in these uh, states and linger there for a long period of time So, just to close with this... There's a a famous story where uh, the Buddha was talking about how his uh, teachings really are directed specifically at suffering and the end of suffering and he used this image and and he said now if there were a case where say somebody was shot with an arrow and they needed help and someone was there to help them do you think that this person would be saying well where, where did it come from? Where did this arrow come from? And who was the Fletcher who made the arrow? And where do you think they got the wood that they made this arrow out of? And, um, you know, the, what kind of feathers did they use on the shaft to keep it moving in the right direction? He says, you wouldn't say any of that. That's not, not the area your, uh, your questions and your concerns would be turned towards. Where, where, who's the Fletcher and where did they get the wood? It would be more like, how the hell can you get it out of here? Will you get this out of here? What can you do to get it out of here? How can you remove this suffering? This system, this whole system, is designed to move, remove the suffering. Generic suffering, right? It doesn't give you all the answers to your personal, individual, customized dukkha although it can help. The clarity of mind, the compassion, the wisdom, the paramis and all the rest of it that are developed in the process of undertaking this purification of mind greatly assist us in all areas of our life. But the Buddha's direct teachings don't cover everything of interest to human beings. And they don't even cover everything the Buddha himself knew. There's this classic story of the Buddha being in the forest with a a number of his monks. And they're talking, and the Buddha reaches down and picks up a handful of leaves. And he says something to the monks like, So... this is a leading question they would say in legal terms he says to the monks so this handful of leaves that i have are they the the same as all the leaves in the forest or not and i think the monks were kind of used to these kinds of questions from the buddha <laughs> like easy questions on the surface of it kind of an obvious answer no matter how deluded you are Okay. Oh no, Lord, there are many more leaves in the forest than, you know, than you're holding. And he said, yes, even so. I know much more than what I teach. What I teach is what you need. This is what you need for liberation of what I know. So what the Buddha teaches, what we teach here, isn't the full range of human knowledge or human experience. It doesn't cover everything that you might be interested in. You probably won't hear a scholarly talk on the relationship between the Tibetan view of the mind and, you know, the Theravadan view of not self. But they cover what you need for liberation. So just to to close, a reminder, know the doubt, but stick to the investigation. Stick to the investigation of states. Don't be seduced by the doubt. Because it's investigation that actually leads to the resolution of the great question. The great question that is actually what caused you to come here and undertake this journey in the first place. May the merit of our practice be for the benefit and well-being of all. And may it be a cause and condition of our own awakening in this very life. no doubt about the sound of the bell. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.